We've now come to one of the last evenings of our retreat together, three or six weeks, in this very um, beautiful and protected uh, environment. And for half of you, um, today we began to practice speaking mindfully or not. Um, Let me just check in for a moment. How are you doing, those of you who are six-week practitioners. You could use a nap. Tiring from talking. Mm -hmm. It is. It's a lot of energy. Please. This is the same city in which I reviewed everything that I had said was more exhausting than the sitting. Ah, the sitting reviewing it was more exhausting. Yes. Yeah, writing the reviews of the play for the newspapers. Very tiring. And it does, you don't even have to do it, it all plays back and it's still exhausting. Yeah. Please. Um, I feel a little overwhelmed myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So these are, she said she's feeling overwhelmed if you didn't hear her a bit overwhelmed. Um, these are really important to listen to and respect. Um, it just speaks of how still it's actually been in here and how still you've been in your own bodies and hearts and minds. Um, and so that opening up and contact and stimulation um, can feel very tiring. And you want to be really careful now again to dip back into the silence. We'll be silent all the way till 11 tomorrow morning again. To rest in that, you know, go to sleep early. There's no late night sitting tonight that's scheduled, you're welcome to sit later. Um, but really to take a rhythm, uh, follow a rhythm that's good for your own being and your own body. So this evening, um, I'd like to speak about extending the practice into the ways um, that we live in our lives. Hanshan, that great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet a thousand years ago said, we're all just like bugs in a bowl, all day going round, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the steep slides, sides slipping back over and over again, up and back down. So, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or, look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. That's our movement to go from head in the hands, kind of in the bowl, to look around and say, here we are together, your fellow bugs. (laughs) My daughter also gave me this, and over the course of six weeks, it's hard to remember what what stories I've told and so forth, so I don't know if I've used this or not. It was on our refrigerator for a while, she got it. It says, dear God, so far today I've done all right. Did I read this before? I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been 
greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, (laughs) I'm probably going to need a lot more help. (laughs) Thank you. Amen. And there's some way in which maybe this describes the end of the retreat. I've had this beautiful retreat, but in a few days, I'm going to get out of retreat. From then on, I'm going to need some help. So here are um, some of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha that may be helpful to reflect on as we leave. And they are the teachings of the Eightfold Path. After his enlightenment, when the Buddha walked to the deer park outside of Benares under the trees, the very first teachings he gave were the Four Noble Truths and the Path of Practice. And and my friend said the Blessed One, the words and the teachings of all Buddhas are concerned with only one thing, with the practical path to human happiness. That's its purpose, to release us from suffering, to release the um, suffering individually and collectively, and awaken freedom and happiness in our life. And then he gave a map for this journey, the Eightfold Path. He said, it's not my path, but it is an ancient path that one would find in faring through the forest, a great wood, And seeing it, one would recognize this is an ancient road traversed by people, by enlightened ones of former times. So we follow a path that's been followed in a timeless way. Eightfold path of practice. It begins first with wise understanding. And that, I believe, is one of the most wonderful things that we will carry from this retreat back into the world. It asks us a question. What do we want to do with this life that we've been given? If we look about, we see a world that is in great measure governed by the forces of greed, fear, aggression, delusion. It's also governed by forces of love and caring and compassion, but both of those. And as the speed of the modern world grows, not necessarily, the wisdom doesn't necessarily grow with it, as you know. From Joanna Macy, even the scientists can see that there's no technological fix, no amount of computers, no magic bullet that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, poison by pollution, tribal warfare, and wholesale extinction of plants and animal species. We are going to have to want different things, to seek different pleasures, to pursue different goals than those that have been driving us in our global economy. And so what right understanding does in asking this question, what's really important to our hearts, is it begins to wake us up to the possibility, wise understanding, that there is another way. And that we find that in ourselves, this other way, 
that which is sacred or noble or um, compassionate. We all can sense in ourselves the possibility of greater compassion in our lives, greater balance, a greater inner freedom. And in all the difficulties of the world, remembering that and bringing it to the fore is the, is the ground, the basis on which our path will proceed. Now you will be tempted as you leave, primarily by old habits, not so much by the world. That, of course, is always trying to tempt you in a way. When you walk down the supermarket aisles, the, some of the most highly paid psychologists in the world have labored for months and years to make signs and colors that will grab your attention and say, buy me, you know. So there's those outer temptations. But it's really more um, that we begin as we leave to feel ourselves getting pulled off balance. And then there's a remembering, oh, there is this other way. Even today as you spoke, feel yourself, your body reacting to the words, those who did speak today and so forth. Oh, now it's time to listen to that and be still again. Someone gave me this cartoon yesterday and it's a line of people with two dispenser machines with tickets for what's ahead. And one side, the machine says on the top tickets for true joy and happiness. And the other side, the machine says superficial pleasures you'll live to regret. (laughs) You can guess where the whole line is. (laughs) So right understanding sees the potential for suffering in the world and the potential for freedom and wakefulness that's in us, our Buddha nature. It remembers that, it trusts that, and it lives from that place. It acknowledges this possibility and takes our life as the path. So that when Ajahn Chah, my teacher, would speak about the Eightfold Path, he said, usually the Eightfold Path is wise understanding, right? wise speech, wise livelihood, wise concentration, those sort of things. But actually, it's simpler than that. The Eightfold Path is two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. And the mind is that which walks the path. And if you know, as you leave the retreat, the experiences of the eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body with attention that you have developed and discovered this capacity for attention here, then wisdom, understanding, peace, the awakening of the Buddha is there in those moments for you. So that's the first step, is as we've done, to, to discover another way of being in the world. As Joanna says, there has to be another way, and there is. And we find it not just in our minds, but cellularly, in our body, in our ways of moving, in our hearts. And you carry that. Then the next step is called wise thought, or wise intention, or wise attitude. And understanding first that there's a possibility of living awake and free, the first understanding. Then how to awaken is to apply the quality of intention, which you begin to discover here over and over in the practice, how 
you think, how the direction of mind is pointed begins to show how things will unfold for us. What we dwell on, what we worry about, what we discover we can release and um, point the mind to, all begins to shape the consciousness and the experience of our life. Rabindranath Tagore says, we imagine that our mind is a mirror, that it more or less accurately reflects what is happening outside of us. On the contrary, the mind itself is the principal element of creation. And again, this is something direct that you have learned as you do metta and begin to feel the effect in the heart and the body and the environment around you as you move. So wise intention is the intention to awaken and to direct the mind, this incredible capacity of attention, to openness, to compassion, to discovery. It has a quality of openness and deep questioning. What is this life? How can I live wisely? And when you return, there will be many great koans for you. How do I drive wisely? It's true. How do I um, manage money wisely? How do I speak and act with the people closest to me in a wise way? And there isn't some simple answer, but the quality of intention to discover it, to look, to find in ourselves, is the path of practice. And you have those tools. The other quality beside this openness of intention is a certain courage of heart, a willingness not to just follow our habit, but to stop and study it and see. Because as you return, as we all return from retreats, our habits lie waiting for us like comfortable clothes in the closet. And you start to speak today, those who did of the six-week participants, and your habits just kind of belch out of you in, you know, various ways. They do. And you say, oh my, James talks about how frightened and um, upset he was after his first three-month retreat and went back to complain to Joseph that it didn't work because he saw so much neurosis come out again from his mouth that he thought he had transcended. Ram Dass's description, I think, is more fitting. He says one becomes the connoisseur of your neurosis. You see it and say, oh, there's a really amazing example of it. <laughs> With humor without um, so much judgment. And by stopping, we begin to sense that there is some other way. That that, even those habits, which may happen for a while, that's okay, are not really who we are. Once in the Andes, the mountain people were invaded by the lowlanders. And as a part of their plundering, On the last day, they kidnapped a baby of one of the lowlander families and took the infant with them back up into the mountains. The lowlanders didn't know how to climb the mountains and didn't know any trails or 
where to find the mountain people or track them in the steep terrain. Even so, they sent out their best party of fighting men to climb the mountains and bring the baby home. The men tried first one method of climbing and then another. They tried one trail and another. And after several days of struggle, they had learned to climb only a few thousand feet in these vast mountains. Feeling helpless, they decided the cause was lost and prepared to return to their village below. As they were packing their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them. They realized that she was coming down the mountain that they hadn't figured out how to climb. And then they saw she had the baby strapped to her back. How could that be? One man greeted her and said, We couldn't climb this mountain. How did you do this when the strongest and most able men in the village couldn't do it? She shrugged her shoulders and said, It wasn't your baby. There is in each of us an incredible potential. This is part of the understanding of our Buddha nature, of courage in the face of difficulty, of willingness to um, care with compassion in the face of injustice, um, of a deep wisdom that you have touched over and over on this retreat. And wise intention is to remember that that's within us and to really give it life, even in the difficulties. Then the next three steps of the Eightfold Path. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And all of them together are called sila, or virtue, or uprightness of heart. They are a ground of practice. They are the formal expressions, if you will, of compassion, of not harming. Not harming through speech or action or livelihood, but bringing a compassionate presence to this human realm that we're a part of. And they say, in the simplest sense, what Gandhi said when asked about if he had any message for the people of India as his train pulled out and he wrote on that reporter's little pad, my life is my message. That it's not about spiritual ideals because, as you will find when you return, that it may be easier to love a thousand people in your metta meditation than one person who you live with. You know what I mean? Quite seriously. So it's not the ideals of what we wish, but how we actually behave. And to be free, to discover freedom in action and speech and livelihood means that we can act in such a way that no matter what happens, we have no regret, that we really act from our heart that our actions are in harmony with the web of life, as Chief Seattle called it, the web that we did not weave, but we are a strand in this fabric. Teach your children that whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. And how we speak and act and live and work is what creates this realm for ourselves. Also, You can see when you begin to purify the heart and mind and retreat, get quiet, that the result of our actions come back to haunt us. 
Chogyam Trumpa in his death poem to his students after he wrote that he'd fulfilled his dharma coming to America and they should keep practicing no matter what and so forth. And then he said, remember, I will be haunting you. He's their teacher. Um, as we sit, we begin to realize the reality that how we act and live um, is there within us and their consequences. I mean, the most blunt description of it that I have used on times is that it's hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well. So wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Wise speech may be the most mm, helpful place of all to be mindful in leaving the retreat. Wise speech is speech that is conscious, that speaks what is true and what is useful. And as you could see, even today, as we began to speak, the half of us that did, we talk, but a lot of it's on automatic pilot. Gossip, inflation, self-serving, those are the negative parts, um, making connection, habits, all this stuff. And a lot of the time, that's not even what we have to say. Really, all we want to say is, I'm in here, are you in there? Hello, you know, we just want to make a moment's contact. Or maybe we want to say, I love you to somebody. But you don't say that in public in the same way. So instead we say, how was your retreat? You know, or how was your vacation? Or where are you going? But if we listen deeply to what our heart might say, it's very simple things. So why speech is that which is true and that which is useful or helpful. The principles that the Buddha wrote in one text on this, he said five um, qualities of right speech, wise speech. In due season will I speak. Truthfully will I speak. Gently and not harshly, conducive to harmony will I speak. With clear intention will I speak, and to their benefit will I speak. It doesn't mean that speech becomes heavy-handed and you're always just talking about dharma and, you know, deep things and stuff like that. Um, I remember at the end of one retreat where we were working with speech as a part of practice as we have today and will tomorrow, and people are so sensitive and open, they speak from a deep place to one another, and it's beautiful. But finally, one person came up to me and he said, if I hear one more heartfelt thing, I'm going to throw up. You know, I want to find out who won the 49ers game. I want somebody to talk about the weather. There's just, you know, even that has its place. So in due season, understanding that speech is a way to touch another. It doesn't have to be serious. It can be playful as well. But really paying attention. It is, in fact one of the best places to study the power of the intention of the heart. You can notice before you speak what the intention is. It might be to make contact, lovely. It might be to share something or to listen, beautiful. It might be in later conversations to one-up somebody or to get back at them or to judge them even slightly. And if you say to somebody, 
why did you do that? With the slightest change in inflection, why did you do that? Or why did you do that? One being curious and wanting to learn, the other with a little judgment, like why did you, how come you did that? The very same words with almost the same tone have a completely different result because the intention was different. One was to judge, the other was really to understand and listen. Can you hear the difference? So within the simple act of speaking, the whole power of the heart, the intention becomes revealed. Begin to pay attention to what's there before we speak, what motivates it in the simplest way. There was a study done at a large Illinois state um, psychiatric hospital and clinic by some clever psychologist. Um, This particular hospital was out in the country along a toll road. And to get to the hospital, you had to go off the toll road, pay your toll, and so forth. But it was a small off-ramp, so they didn't have anyone there. They had one of those um, toll-taking machines, one of those booths that you put quarters in or whatever. Um, And so this psychologist decided to put a little camera there and study who among the staff paid their tolls and who drove through without paying their tolls. And he did, because it was sort of on the honor system, you know, maybe a little buzzer, but you could drive through it. And then he did a correlation with that, um, with the success of the therapy by those psychologists, social workers, and psychiatrists, rated in several scales by colleagues and by, by admissions and release and so forth. And he found an interesting thing, that the therapists who paid their tolls, their patients got better. <laughs> there's an incredible, faster, there's an incredible power to the integrity of our life and our words. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And words have so much power. You know, you can say something um, where you're really angry, hurtful, and so forth, and the remnant of that word can last for years. Just a phrase, you know? Or on the other hand, you can say another set of words to someone, just a few words, and it can transform your relationship, your heart, your life with that person. It's also important to know, as you've learned on this retreat, that you don't have to talk so much. How has it been to not talk once you got used to it? Is there anybody who hasn't had some enjoyment of the silence? And it's quite fantastic. But then you begin to hear how you're talking to yourself, right? And even in that, there's wise speech. Ah, you shouldn't have done that. You know, the judging voice and so forth. Compassion in due season, gently, with intention to remember, to awaken. But I read this little phrase somewhere. It says about silence, a closed mouth gathers no feet. Right? (laughs) Maybe that was for George Bush or whoever it was. um, It's related to what the Buddha said Better than a thousand useless words is one word leading to the truth. Better than a thousand useless words, one word leading to loving kindness or compassion. And so we begin this whole other area of practice 
paying attention, listening, not with judgment, but discovering how through our attention our words can follow our heart. Then there's wise action. And wise action most fundamentally is a commitment to the well-being of all that lives, the commitment to not harming, to not creating pain or suffering for other beings for their sake and our own. It's the understanding that the path of happiness for us and all beings is to minimize harm and to act in ways that support what's beautiful. It's particularly difficult because we live in a society, certainly in the media and the movies and the, the, the global culture that we're in, where stealing or killing or lying and so forth is de rigueur. It's as much a part of human kind of drama that we see as any other kind of action. Wise action, the path to happiness, and probably the best practices in leaving this retreat, wise speech and wise action, are personified by the precepts. And the precepts are really a quality of dignity where we undertake first to not kill, to live, to step, to walk, to move with a reverence for all life. And here you could see it. I remember being with uh, the Dalai Lama when he was talking about this in one of our small teacher meetings. And he was talking about how he loved to watch bugs because there was so much to learn from them the sure-footedness and creativity of the spider and the patience of the ants, you know, and the generosity of the bees, and that each insect had some quality that was better than even the Dalai Lama, he would say. Isn't that fantastic? So there's a, a care for life. Um... This is from Alice Walker. She writes, War will stop when we no longer praise it or give it attention at all. Peace will come wherever it is sincerely invited. Love will overflow every sanctuary given it. Truth will grow where the fertilizer that nourishes it is also truth and faith will become its own reward. So one piece of news to tell you about, I'm sorry to say, is that as of yesterday, the NATO powers began a bombing campaign against the Serbians because the Serbs, President Milosevic's army, were continuing to burn villages and destroy the people of Kosovo. And after months of negotiation, it ended up nowhere. And so, as we sit and walk and make peace, there's also the bombing primarily of military targets and installations 
in uh, Serbia and in parts of Kosovo of the Serb army. And there's no good answer to this because what it's intended to stop is also terrible. If the bombing didn't happen, there would be um, vast human suffering. And with the bombing, there's also vast suffering. And I see it as partly because we have a human culture that allows for that kind of suffering to build up and grow and isn't based on these values. But again, as Alice Walker says, war will stop when we no longer praise it. And in a sense, these precepts are to say we choose to enter the human realm and to live honorably and to not kill or steal or harm other beings by our action. Great practices. Ajahn Chah used to talk about them all the time. He loved these practices more than almost any others because there's a shining that happens to a being that lives with this kind of dignity. Not to steal, it's the same. If we steal, we create a world of paranoia and fear and video monitors and stores and billions of dollars, 80 billions of dollars the US spends each year just on security devices and guards. And it gets worse because we're taking from one another. And we know very well from our inner practice that it's not what you have that makes you happy. You are, as someone said, just the accountant in the firm. You know, you get to count it for a while and then you pass it along. So to not steal in one way is to not take from others, but in another is to develop a care for the things of the world that we are given, not to grasp them, but to use them wisely. To leave the temple more beautiful when you depart than it was when you came. To leave the world more beautiful when you depart than it was when you came. And the expression of not killing, to go back to that, most deeply is a reverence for life. The expression of not stealing is generosity, as James talked about the other night. The joy of open-hearted giving. Not possession, but the opposite, sharing. And the question is simple. Do you know anyone who's really generous, who's not happy? It's a wonderful practice. Then refraining from causing harm through sexuality and sexual misconduct causing harm out of greed, compulsion, aggression, in which one betrays oneself and another. I like to ask the question, is there anyone in the room who has not made an idiot of themselves in sexual relations? Please raise your hand. Don't bother. Right? You don't even need to bother. Um, it's a very powerful energy, and it's close to birth and death. 
It's actually how we get born, by the way, just so you remember there is a connection, (laughs) isn't it? Um, And it touches the sacred as well as this mystery of incarnation. And it can be associated with greed and compulsion and anger, you know, and aggression. Or in a sacred way, it can be connected with tenderness and intimacy and love. This is a great power given to us. Take care with it as a practice as you leave. And you begin to know because now you're sensitive. You can feel when you're in harmony with yourself and with another. Not to misuse intoxicants the same way one doesn't misuse sexuality. And it's said we live in an addicted society. Television, you know, alcohol, 10 million uh, drug addicts, 20 million alcoholics. The majority of auto fatalities, the majority of child abuse, the majority of home fires. The amount of pain caused by the misuse of substances and addictions is catastrophic. It's, it's enormous. So there's a huge cost. And what this means is first to take care not to misuse with oneself all these substances. But more deeply, it's to start to pay attention. When do you want to put yourself to sleep? What's going on that's difficult or fearful? And that's the place to practice. And instead, to begin to cultivate instead of addiction, to cultivate the capacity and the quality of being present. Just what we've done here. So when somebody asked Ajahn Chah if meditation was like self-hypnosis, he said, no, it's like de-hypnosis. That we're already in some ways hypnotized by habit and at times mindless action. And to awaken is such a wonderful thing. To take a step or a walk where we're awake on a spring day, to see another person and really see them and honor them, to care for this life. So to not misuse intoxicants, but rather to see this potential for awakening. There's a wonderful power to the heart of virtue, to that integrity. It is the blessing, it is the refuge, and it is the guardian of one's life. If we pay attention to wise speech and wise action and not harm, then no matter what happens to us, there is within us a kind of integrity that says, yes, I have lived this life wisely. It's beautiful. wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. The traditional teaching is not to cause harm through our livelihood by selling weapons or drugs or things that are harmful. And unfortunately, we live in a society that makes a good deal 
of our national income by selling weapons worldwide. I think it's one of the grave crimes of a country that in name would be democratic and has beautiful values. We sell every year hundreds of billions of dollars of killing machines as a way to support our technological society. Um, And I think that as participants in the society, it's time to speak about it and say no. So wise livelihood is not acting in livelihood and work in ways that harm other beings. But more than that, it's using the work that we have to awaken. Because in each of us, there is a longing to give back, a joy to have some work to do that's meaningful. And we get spoiled in America. I want the perfect job, the most meaningful work. There isn't the perfect work, you know. Sometimes if you weren't born in this rather rich society, if you're born in India or Latin America and various places, um, if your parents were a farmer, you become a farmer. If your father was a shoemaker, you become a shoemaker. Or if your mother was this, you, you follow that. That's all that's available to you. But you could be a beautiful shoemaker. You could be a farmer that does that with great care and integrity. I mean, face it. Could any job that you ever got be more boring than sitting and walking in meditation? (laughs) Say, oh, this isn't an interesting job. All I do is sit there and answer the phone, or all I do is take tolls on the bridge as people come by. It, to me, from the outside, it looks exactly the same as lifting, moving, placing, you know, sitting, in and out, breathing. You've already done the most boring job on earth in some way. So the idea isn't that you have some fancy, highfalutin, I've got the best job in the world. The idea is, can we take the work that is there for us to do, whatever we're able to do to contribute, because it's such a beautiful thing to contribute, and make it into our path. Thomas Merton, as a writer, he said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. But if you write for men and women, you may make some money and you'll give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. But if you write for self-promotion, You can read what you yourself have written, and after 10 minutes you'll be so disgusted you wish that you were dead. (laughs) Or as it says in the Bible, but that the Lord build your house, you build it in vain. And what this says is that our speech, our actions, and our liveliness have an inherent holiness to them when we attend to them that this is the practice that we carry. And you can feel it as you ate your apple or pear at tea time, or your crackers, or you know, did your work meditation, the sweeping or cleaning or whatever, with enough time to give it care, how beautiful it is to work with care. And that's a gift you carry from the monastery back into the world. Then the last three qualities, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, we've talked about before 
other ways in the retreat. Wise effort is the key, the kind of energy we put into awakening. And it's the effort to be present, to actually be where we are in this moment. Not to struggle to change the world or perfect ourselves or our personality. Have you ever seen a perfect personality? But rather to perfect our love and our presence and our care. You know the story of the Zen master who had this very young and um, extremely uh, devoted man, young man come to him and say, I'm, I really want to enter the temple and I'm going to sit and practice and will you take me in? And the Zen master said, yes, you can come and practice with us. And he said, well, how long would it take if I really practiced to get enlightened? And the master said, well, for someone like you, probably 10 years. 10 years, how about if I really work at it? If I re-? said, oh, then probably 20. <laughs> oh, no, no, you, you must have made a mistake. And um, why did you double it? I mean, I, I, I'm very sincere. Oh, for you, probably 30. <laughs> that story. From the Tao, speaking of water, that the yielding conquers the resistant, the soft conquers the hard, is a fact known by all, yet used by few. The wisdom that you take as you leave here is not to go out and change the world, but rather this place of balance of the trusting heart that you found in yourself, to step, to breathe, to listen before you speak, to listen after you speak, and to let the kind of healing that is inherently good come from that spaciousness of heart. It's not fixing. This is from Voltaire. He said, the art of healing and medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. And this has something to say, I think you all know it, that when you strived here, it didn't work terribly well. But if you gave yourself with a balance and a care, a kind of integrity, just this willingness to be present, to listen, to trust and unfolding, then wisdom came all unbidden to you. And it's again an energy that you carry from the retreat and an understanding you felt it's like you've learned how to ride the bicycle. Now you get to go and ride around town. And there's more traffic, it's true, so you have to take care for a while. But you know that in your being. Wise effort. Wise mindfulness. The abode of the wise. That quality of sacred presence that we've been cultivating. And now, It's simply extending that out into the world. From Gary Snyder. All of us are apprenticed to the same teacher that religious masters have worked with from the very beginning of time, reality. Reality says, master the 24 hours and do it well without self-pity. It is as hard to get the children herded into the carpool and down the road to the bus, as it is to chant sutras in the Buddha hall 
on a cold morning. One is not better than the other. Each can be quite boring, and they both have the virtuous quality of repetition. Repetition and ritual and attention bring good results in every form. Changing the filters, wiping noses, going to meetings, picking up around the house, sitting in meditation, washing dishes, checking the oil. Don't let yourself think that one or another distracts you from the serious pursuits. The round of chores, the task of the day, is not something to get over so that you can practice on the path. It is the place of practice. It is the path if there ever was one. And so the mindfulness now changes from in, oh, all those sensations, space between breaths, space around the breath, out, movement, all that subtlety, to wiping noses, going to meetings, pausing before you pick up the phone, hello, oh, aversion arising, (laughs) joy arising, noticing the states, in answering the phone, the same as in taking a step in the walking meditation. And with it, each thing offers the same possibility of freedom, of presence, of compassion, of resting in one's Buddha nature. Keeping it simple. From Meher Baba. The scope of service, and I believe that wise attention leads directly to service and caring. The scope of service is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, and huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things. And if these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable. The gift of mindfulness, just one small moment after another, and all the moments are taken care of. To do that is to learn to rest as we have, to come from that place of understanding. And finally, wise effort, balance, opening, trust, to be present for all things, wise mindfulness, that attention in each moment. And born of wise understanding and wise action and wise effort and wise mindfulness comes wise concentration, which in this case means wholeness, uh, coming together, of body and mind. There is no way to peace, someone wrote. Peace is the way. The way we are, that wholeness, is the expression, the culmination of this eightfold path. Poem for you. This is from Lisa Cullen called Reasons to Meditate. 
to practice noticing, to understand simple things, to give myself clarity, to face inevitable difficulties, to make a conscious choice, to welcome my feelings, to know pain, to experience the bliss of effort, to take gentle possession of my mind, to free my mind, to be aware of my sensitivity, to dip below superficiality, to brighten my eyes, to forget how I look, to behave in the manner of one who woke up, to touch the earth, to learn without words, to unlock my heart. It's such a gift that we have learned to sit and to walk. And now we return and bring that same quality in daily meditations as you do, in your work, in your attention to others in family. This quality of presence and connectedness or wholeness, whatever we do with that wholeness, has beauty to it. As I said the other night, whether it's making art or computer programs or making love or business, the fullness that we bring, the presence itself, is what allows a kind of shining and openness and freedom to come forth. Make of yourself a light, was the Buddha's last instructions. Make of yourself a light. I believe that in the process of this retreat, we have each in our own way found the possibility of an embodied awareness not just out in, you know, some other imaginary place, but a stillness of the body itself, a stillness of the heart and mind. Yes, things come and go and rise and fall, praise and blame, pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow, they do come and go. But this is the steadiness that gets born in us from our sitting and our walking. Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the UN. In the point of rest at the center of our being, we encounter a world where all things are at rest in the same way. Haven't you seen that? Just standing by a tree, this retreat. And then the tree becomes a mystery. A cloud is a revelation, and each person a cosmos of whose riches we can only catch glimpses. The life of simplicity is simple, but it opens to us a book in which we never get beyond the first page. So rich. This stillness allows us to see and feel and sense from this still point beyond the, what Alan Watts called the skin-encapsulated ego, to feel our connection with all things. 
The freedom that the Buddha taught is here. It's always here to be found. The great heart of compassion is here. It is always here. And the understanding and steadiness and intention and balance, the care with words and deeds that come out of our mindfulness, all that we've done here are the practices of that freedom. Life is this simple, says Thomas Merton. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable, it is true. And if we want to know how to practice and where when we leave, O nobly born, O son and daughter of the Buddha, these two eyes, these two ears, these two nostrils, the tongue, the body, the experiences moment to moment of this life are the path, and you as a Buddha can turn it into something beautiful. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.